0: Grab your Bible and let's turn to Zephaniah. Pastor Bruce continues his sermon, Hope Through the Darkness, and today we look at Woe to the Nation, Zephaniah chapter 2. In your Pew Bible, you can turn to page 938. Zephaniah chapter 2, and we will begin reading in verse 4. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the house of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in his place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you and recognize that you are a just God that you have all sovereignty and power and that your wrath, it will come down on those that reject you. But God, we look at you as our Father of love and mercy and grace and by that grace, we, we have hope that through Jesus Christ, we can be saved from your wrath. We are dependent only upon your gift for this and we rely on it and depend on it and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Well, how do you respond to fire alarms? Are you the uh, quote cool person who doesn't even blink or even budge when the alarm is sounding? Or perhaps you are more like the frantic person pushing past people to get out the door. Over in our house, one of the smoke detectors is in the hallway, and uh, it's right next to our kitchen. And for whatever reason, this particular smoke detector in our house is very sensitive. In fact, it goes off if you burn the toast or just boil water. And so it's rather annoying, to say the least. Most of the time, Darla just grabs a kitchen towel and runs over there and just waves it by the smoke detector to try to get it to stop. When the boys were younger and they were in the living room watching TV, they'd take the remote control and turn the volume as high as it would go to drown out the sound of the alarm. And here I am, I got the boys with the TV blaring as loud as it can be. My wife is waving a towel. And if I'm in the house and see this, I'm annoyed even more. And so at that point, that's when i get up and just take the battery out of the alarm. Shut the thing down. But I'd be stupid to take the battery out for good. I'd be stupid to even throw away the fire alarm. I'd be stupid to complain that the alarm is too loud, it's too shrilling. It's meant to be loud. It's meant to be shrilling. It's meant to be inconvenient. It's meant to disturb people so it saves lives. And it's the same with God's warnings in Scripture. But so often we're like the person who takes out the battery and just throws it away. We tend to skip over the judgment stuff in the Bible. Because it's loud. It's in your face. And it's meant to be. But as disturbing and inconvenient as a fire alarm is, nothing is compared to the fire itself. And compared to these warnings in Scripture, they are nothing compared to the judgment they actually warn us about. In fact, these warnings we read here, such as in Zephaniah, need to shock us out of our complacency. It needs to make us face the reality that judgment is coming as well as our need to seek the Lord's saving grace before it's too late. This Old Testament book of Zephaniah is, well, shall we say it, it's full of judgment. Which is one reason why it's often neglected. It's not pleasant to read. In fact, it's a bit like the fire alarm going off, and no one likes hearing the fire alarm going off. It's annoying. And yet we need to hear the wrath of God in Zephaniah's warning of judgment. But we also must hear the mercy of God in God's invitation to seek his saving grace before it's too late. Here in chapter 2 Zephaniah turns his attention beyond the borders of Judah in which God's people resided and he turns to begins to focus to the surrounding nations proclaiming judgment on these nations. So how should we respond to this judgment on the nations? I mean, how is what Todd read for us in chapter 2 even relevant for our lives today? As he was reading that, did that not cross your mind? What does this have to do with me? In my life, right now, today, in the midst of a pandemic. Here's the big idea of Zephaniah's prophecy against the nations. And it has everything to do with us. Notice it here. The whole world stands under God's sovereign rule. That is the big idea, what we see here In chapter 2. That's what Zephaniah is getting across to us as an overarching theme in truth. He wants God's people in Judah to understand this theme. But he also wants us here today, as Christ's followers in the New Testament age, the church age, to also understand that the whole world stands under God's sovereign rule. And because of that, he is the ultimate judge of all the nations. And therefore... It is useless to seek refuge from God's judgment in these other nations as well as their impotent gods. This section of verses in chapter 2, it focuses, as we said, on God's sovereignty over all the nations, and in particular, God's judgment on these nations. But this judgment, understand, is actually part of Zephaniah's message that we learned last Sunday. This message about the judgment of the nations is actually directed to God's people, not necessarily to these nations. Zephaniah urges the people in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And then notice the very first word in the next verse. Verse 4. What is it? 4. And then Zephaniah calls out in the rest of the chapter all these different nations from the four corners of the world representing his total sovereign rule over all the world that will now be judged by God. And this word for, it links these two sections together, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 15. And it connects them and is intended to support the prophet's call to seek the Lord's grace before it's too late. You see, the rest of the chapter here emphasizes that since other nations who live in rebellion against the Lord will be judged, then Judah has no grounds for presuming that she will be exempt from a similar fate if they persist in their rebellion against God. You see, make no mistake about it. The Lord is the judge of all nations. And he will be our judge as well. Now at times it may appear as if some people are just quote getting away with it all. Like Asaph did in Psalm 73. We may even struggle inwardly. In fact we may even express it outwardly with this apparent prosperity of the wicked. What's going on here? How are these wicked people getting away with what they're getting away with? Where's the justice in all this? But Zephaniah assures us that ultimately nobody gets away with anything. All the nations will be judged. And since this is true, then it's now useless. It's even foolish then to seek refuge from God's judgment apart from God. To seek that refuge in other nations or even in ourselves and, or in our idols and gods and whatever that may be. You see, Judah was constantly tempted to turn to political alliances with these other nations for her safety. Trusting them for protection rather than seeking the Lord for refuge. And Zephaniah highlights now the futility of that. He highlights for us the senselessness of such attempts by showing us God's Power over them. In the face of the Lord's might, these nations were rendered powerless along with their false gods. This reality speaks to us loud and clear today. Listen, when we face a crisis, even in our own lives, where do we turn? Where do we seek refuge? Where do we turn for our hope, our security, our own peace? We too, in the face of crisis, are we not tempted to place our trust in ourselves and what we can do? And even in the idols that we turn to that promise us falsely, deceptively, even a sense of security and significance rather than relying on the Lord alone. But Zephaniah shows us the futility of such thinking. And instead, he urges us here in chapter 2 to seek the Lord before it's too late. Zephaniah's message in this chapter, that our God reigns, listen, it is an encouraging message. And it's encouraging for three reasons. Let's explore those reasons here for a moment, for a few minutes here. Notice the first reason, is because God will judge the Gentile nations, and he will do so justly. Zephaniah has already made the point that God will judge the nations justly because they have sinned against the Lord. He has also described the universal judgment that is still to come on the day of the Lord's wrath when the whole world will be consumed. And now he applies God's judgment to the situation that God's people in particular faced with their enemies. See, you've got to understand, Judah was surrounded by hostile nations who crossed their borders and attacked their citizens. They were constantly threatened by the possibility of invasion by these other nations. And so, I'm sure God's people must have wondered whether the sovereign rule of God meant anything at all. Does God even rule our God? Where is he in the midst of all this? And so Zephaniah shows the people of God in this country of Judah, in the nation there, he shows them that our God still reigns over all the nations of the world and he will ultimately bring them to account. in fact, these nations from the four corners of the world, as we already mentioned, they actually symbolize the universal rule of God. And so if we care about Justice. if we care about God's glory, then we will be encouraged here to know that God will act in perfect justice against sin and evil in the world. Notice who is judged, these Gentile nations. There's actually five of them in four different areas of the world. First of all, God will judge Philistia in the west. Zephaniah begins with the Philistines who inhabited the coastal cities west of Judah. And he describes their destruction in detail in verses 4 through 7. In fact, what's interesting is the official declaration by Zephaniah, get this, is that the word of the Lord is against them. That is not a place you want to be in life, where the word of the Lord is against you. And so as a result the Philistines' major cities, which are identified here, would be invaded. They would suddenly be overthrown. And normally, it would require a lengthy siege to capture such a significant city. But the battle begun against Ashdod at dawn would be over by noonday, we're told. The inhabitants of this area would be wiped out, leaving their homeland as a pasture for the animals of God's people. And this would have been most offensive to the Philistines. Why? Because they perceived themselves as far superior to God's people. And so hearing this, if they even did, all of this they would have found totally absurd, ridiculous. There's no way this can happen to us. And yet it did. Next, Zephaniah's attention moves eastward, where God will judge Moab and Ammon in the east. Fittingly, these descendants of Lot, through the incestuous relationship with his daughters, would share the same fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. They would become a perpetual wasteland, a salt pit, where nothing would grow but weeds, according to verse 9. After Moab and Ammon, Zephaniah briefly turns southward where we see that God will judge Cush or Ethiopia in the south. And to them, God declares in verse 12, in fact, it's the only verse that is uh, set aside for them. It says, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And notice that that my sword, it's God's sword. It's not the enemy's sword. It is by the hand of the Lord that they will be destroyed. And then the longest prophecy of judgment, however, is reserved for north. Where God will judge Assyria in the north. Look what Zephaniah says God will do in verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand. We've already seen that that phrase is, is the same kind of phrase and terminology that God used in Exodus when he stretched out his hand with the ten plagues over Uh, The Pharaoh there. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Syria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Nineveh was a bustling city. In fact, it was one of the premier cities of the ancient world. And yet it will become a wilderness ruin inhabited only by the kinds of birds and beasts that live in such desolate places. This once vibrant city will become like a ghost town with its architectural wonders in ruins so that those who pass by and see the destruction will wonder, how in the world did this city, the city of Nineveh, what happened to her? How did she become such a desolation? And so what we see here is that these nations will all face the appropriate judgment for their sins. And it's all a foreshadowing of the day when the Lord's judgment will come upon all the nations of the world. But this judgment here, it makes you wonder, what is the great sin Of all these nations that unites these different nations and different peoples and renders them liable to such severe judgment from the Lord. In other words, why will God judge these nations so harshly? Well, notice this. Be assured that God's judgment is justified. Look at it. These Gentile nations will be judged by God Because of their pride against God and his people. Listen, God never acts arbitrarily. God never acts unjustly. God's judgments are always, always justified. Listen, today in our culture, as Christ followers, we need to embrace that truth. Because that truth flies in the face of our culture. We must embrace this truth that God never acts unjustly. His judgments are always justified. In fact, pride here, it begins with an anti-God fist in the air. And it always, this kind of pride always ends up with this kind of superior attitude towards God's people. We see this here with Moab and Ammon. They've not only rebelled against God with their pride, but now they have taunted God's people. Notice what God says in verse 8. He says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Now, this is not your run-of-the-mill taunting that children might experience on the playground. This is the enemies of God's people taunting them about their God. This taunting, therefore, is an attack on the very character of God, on the name of God. And therefore, it is much, much worse than just simple name-calling. This taunting is similar to what is described in Psalm 42, verse 10. Where it says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Where is your God? And Zephaniah wants us to see that God will have the last word. God is not mocked. He will judge those who taunt his people, as it says in verse 10. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. In this taunting of God and His people, listen, it is rooted in pride. It's rooted in arrogance. Nineveh, that great city, as long as it lives securely, it arrogantly said in its heart, in verse 15, I am. And there is no one else. Listen, that is an assertion of divine status. They are putting themselves alongside God, the one true I am God. They were exalting in themselves, declaring that I am. And there is no one else. This self-centered, self-confident perspective on life is the air we breathe in our culture today. Ultimately, though, self-sufficiency is self-worship. It's a form of idolatry that exalts ourselves even to the level of God. Such a claim to godlike status or power will not go unchallenged by the Lord. While God gives much, much grace and mercy, listen to me, at the end of the day, those who arrogantly rebel against God, those who attack the character of God, the name of God, those who taunt the people of God will be judged. You say, what does this mean for us? Well, it simply shows us clearly that God hates pride. And He hates pride that rises up and declares that we have no need of God. God hates the autonomous, self-sufficient kind of pride that was at the very center of the Assyrian culture. And in case we think that we are not like the people of Nineveh, let us think again. C.S. Lewis. He described pride as the sin of all sins when he wrote, Pride is the essential vice. The utmost evil is pride. Immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Why is pride so offensive to God? What makes pride so offensive is its inherent blasphemy. It claims that God basically is not God and that we are God. Pride denies that God is the central reality of the universe and it creates the justification for every other sin that proceeds from it. Perhaps this is why G.K. Chesterton once said, if I only had one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. Zephaniah brings home to us this truth that God is sovereign over all the nations. Our God reigns. So be encouraged that God will judge the nations and he will do so justly. His judgments are always justified. But Zephaniah also reminds us of another aspect of God's sovereign reign that should bring encouragement to our hearts And that is number two, God cares for His people steadfastly. Zephaniah is keen to point out that God is not only a righteous God, but God is also a gracious God. In the midst of His judgment on the nations, God cares for His people, and He does so steadfastly. In fact, notice the steadfast love of God here. First of all, God's judgment includes the promise of restoration Of his people. Zephaniah, is clear that God will keep his promise to the remnant of believers. The land that was first promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 would be theirs. Furthermore, this land would be a place characterized now by peace and security. And above all, it would be a place where the Lord will care for his people and restore their fortunes. Notice God's care for His people in verses 6 through 7. Look at it again. Notice what it says. In you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them, and restore their fortunes and so what an overwhelming thought this is that our God this sovereign God who is the judge of all the nations of the world that God he is mindful of us he was mindful of God's people in Judah he is still mindful of God's people today Out of the ashes of judgment will rise this restored people dedicated to God and join life as he intended it. Zephaniah assures us here that God will never let his people down, but will always provide for them and protect them. If not in this life, definitely in the next And so we see that God's judgment here includes this promise of restoration. Number two, we also see that God's judgment includes the promise of vindication of his people and even his name. Remember, the taunting of God's people is an attack on God's name. And so when God vindicates his people, he is at the same time vindicating His name as well. And we see this in verse 9. Look at it. God says, Therefore, as I live, declares the, notice it, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. And so while this judgment For with this judgment, God is vindicating his name as the, quote, Lord of hosts and as the God of Israel. In other words, think of it this way. God is basically telling us here, taunt my people and mock me as their God and judgment awaits you. And then notice what God will do for his people in the rest of verse 9. He says, the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. And so God himself will vindicate his people and will give them victory over their enemies. And in so doing, he vindicates his name again as the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel. Zephaniah is teaching us here that God judges the nations judgely, but he also cares for his people steadfastly. God promises to meet our needs. He promises to give us victory, vindicating his name and even vindicating our trust in his faithfulness. In fact, in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans eight thirty one and 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There is another encouraging truth that jumps out from the pages here of Zephaniah chapter 2. And that is, God offers hope to believers universally. He offers hope to believers universally. Listen, the promise of judgment to come. It carries with it the hope of salvation. Zephaniah has already hinted at this hope when he tells us that God will restore the fortunes of the remnant of believers in verse 7. But now there's a further message of hope in God's judgment on Moab and Ammon in verse 11. Look at it again. Notice what it says. The Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. And so right here in this one little verse, God is setting before us a twofold hope for us here this morning. First of all, there is hope that idolaters will come to fear the Lord. There is hope that idolaters will come to fear the Lord. And by the way, before we came to Christ, that's what we were. We were all idolaters. And even now, we still struggle with that. Setting up our own idols and turning to them instead of relying on the Lord. And yet there is hope for all people that they will come to fear the Lord. Zephaniah underlines the fact that on the day of the Lord's wrath, God will be awesome to the Moabites and Ammonites. In other words, they will know that they cannot ignore God or treat him with disrespect. This God, whom they treated with contempt, will be known for who he is. That is the God of the universe. And he will do so by exerting his sovereign authority over every other so-called God. Zephaniah gives us hope here that lives can be radically changed. Perhaps you're thinking of even somebody in your own life. Neighbor, coworker, family member. You're like, I don't know if they can be changed. The idols they worship, the idols they've turned to, I don't know if they could ever turn to from that to the living true God. Listen, there is always hope with God. There is always hope with God. those who have no fear, those who have no reverence for the Lord, they can discover that God is awesome. Those who are proud can be humbled to fear the one true God if they will turn to the Lord, if they will seek the Lord and repent. Zephaniah believed this. In fact, he believed what Paul, the Apostle Paul, saw firsthand when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so there is hope Zephaniah is showing us and giving us here that idolaters, what we used to be, will come to fear the Lord. Number two, there's hope that people from all over the world will worship the Lord. Zephaniah makes this incredible statement in the last part of verse 11, where he says, And to him, that is, and to God, shall bow down each in its place all the land's of the nations, And so Zephaniah's hope is that a day is coming when people from every shore and from every land will worship the Lord as the one true God. The Apostle John, he actually saw this in a vision. This global worship of the Lord. And he describes it this way in Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10 where he writes, After this I looked. issue is the question of the gospel what will you do with god in the end everyone will respond with the same conclusion the same declaration jesus is lord in fact speaking of christ paul tells us in philippians chapter 2 9 through 10 therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But Scripture also reminds us that only those who willingly declare that Jesus is Lord in this life will enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God. Those who reject God will not escape the reality that Jesus is still the sovereign Lord over all the earth. Instead, they will find it to be a rather sobering and terrifying moment as they declare it to be true, but they will do so too late with their destiny already sealed in eternal judgment. And so the day of the Lord is coming, the day of the Lord is near. And Zephaniah's message to us here, and even to pray for those who are outside of the kingdom of God, is to pray for them and for us that we would seek God's saving grace before it's too late. Now is the time. Zephaniah reminds us to repent of our sin and to call on the name of the Lord to save you. And if you haven't done that already, then please do so today. Zephaniah is pleading with you. Now is the time. Now, with such a strong message of God's judgment, it is easy to overlook the message of hope in all of this. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. A sovereign ruler over all the nations. Listen, God judges the nations, and He does so justly. Our God cares for His people, and He does so steadfastly. And He offers hope to believers universally across this whole world. And so as we turn the page on God's judgment here in chapter 2, here is our greatest challenge. And that is simply believing. That God loves you. Believing. That God really does care for you. In the midst of your difficulties. Believing. That there really is. Hope. Through the darkness. You see the temptation. When you hear about God's judgment to come. The temptation when you look out across our country and our world and you see the spiritual darkness that is overshadowing our cities and our country and our world today. The temptation there is to question God's love. And then to question God's love for you. When you look at your life, It may even seem as if nothing is working out the way you hoped, the way you expected. In fact, it may seem to be one disappointment after another. You may even feel like you're the only Christian around and wonder, is it even worth it to keep following the Lord? But that's when we need to remember that God is at work around the world, forming a people for Himself, by His grace and for His glory. And it is good to be counted in that number. Listen, to Zephaniah's day, the majority of God's people had fallen away from the Lord. And yet God was still mindful of them. And God is mindful of you too, especially in times of difficulty. So believe that God loves you. Believe that God cares for you. And believe that there is hope through the dark. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, we praise you for simply being our sovereign Lord. And we thank you for your gracious warning of judgment that is still to come. It's in love that you even warn us. And so give us open hearts that we may respond to your merciful invitation that is provided in Jesus Christ. And Father, forgive us of our own complacency. And may we seek you in repentance before it's too late. And also help us to stay faithful in following Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Till the very end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we dismiss, I just want to encourage you to stay faithful to the Lord. And part of staying faithful to the Lord is staying faithful in our commitments to the Lord, in worshiping Him, and worshiping Him with our our giving and uh, our tithes and offerings and even towards our faith promise giving as well. And so I just want to encourage you to stay faithful in that regard. Sunday after Sunday, or perhaps it's month after month, however you may give, whatever regular basis that is, and whether you give in person, uh, you can drop that gift in the contribution box at the info center, or whether you give online, I want to encourage you to stay faithful in that regard, and, uh, but perhaps you're here, or maybe you even know somebody who is in need, you're in need of food assistance, or financial assistance, again, we say this each Sunday, and we truly do mean it. Uh, reach out to our church office and let us know what your situation is and how we might be able to help you. I want to leave you with this. And so as you leave here this morning, take this word of truth, this word of hope, with you. Remind yourself of this truth. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. According to Psalm forty, sixteen, great is the Lord. May you be able to say that with all your heart as you turn to him, as you rely on him, as you walk with him, not perfectly, but progressively. And when you fall, you get back up, you repent, and you turn your eyes back to the Lord, and you keep on keeping on all the way to the end, either of your life or when Jesus returns because he is coming back and he is coming soon. You are dismissed.